everyone doing in podcast world? This is the Core Consult RX Podcast, and welcome back. My name is Mike Corvino. With me, as always, Cole Swanson. And today, we are talking about psoriasis. Yes, with a P. With a P. Not an S. Yes, <laughs> unfortunately. But we are talking about plaque psoriasis because there is way, way, way too many types to actually go over. Mm-hmm. So we'll focus in on one. So we're going to go through some of the treatment options, some of the current medications, and yeah, go through and uh, see if we can at least give you guys some a refresher, not necessarily every possible opportunity and uh, treatment option. But. Yeah, another one of those overview type podcasts. There's a whole bunch of monoclonal antibodies coming out these days. Very expensive, but it seems like that's kind of where the future of pharmaceuticals is going for these immune type conditions, right? Yeah. And uh, I know we said, I think probably the last podcast that we were going to get more narrow and not do <laughs> nah. big, broad reviews. But we thought, you know what? Why do what we said we were going to do? Right. And we'll just stick to what's been, what's been happening. But <laughs> what's been working. If it ain't broke. Yeah. No, we really will get more more narrow after this, but we just kind of want to do psoriasis. So, yeah, uh, before we kind of get started, I want to give a big congratulations. I know we've mentioned this. That it was getting close on the last podcast, but Cole Swanson is officially done with pharmacy school. Done. Done. Nothing done. else. Oh, it's hard to believe. Isn't that awesome? I'm pumped, dude. Yeah. Super excited. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty awesome. So I know we've probably mentioned this before, but this is the first time you've ever listened to us. I met Cole on his very first rotation um, when he was forced to hang out with me for a whole month <laughs> for a grade. And, Had to uh, laugh at all your jokes. Yeah. Oh, it was terrible. <laughs> And so, uh, yeah, that seems like it was five seconds ago, and he ripped through all his rotations, and now he's done. Yeah, so, so Mike, back-to-back um, preceptor of the year, is about to start rolling with a whole new class. <laughs> yeah, starting tomorrow, actually. I'm meeting him at 8, the two students I have on rotation uh, at 8 a.m. Oh, it is tomorrow. Yeah. Wow. 8 a.m. Cool. Consequently, guess what we're talking about for our first topic discussion? <laughs> what are you talking about? Black psoriasis. <laughs> Might as well multitask. Might as well kill two birds with one stone. Work smart and hard. You know, I was looking into coining that because I was like, hey, that's, you know, people say work smart, not hard, but why not work smart and hard? Yeah, of course, somebody already coined it. Yeah. Mike Rowe actually has uh, t-shirts on eBay. Does he really? wants to buy one. Yeah. That's uh, the... Dirtiest That's the jobs dirty, and, dirty jobs guy. Yeah, he's yeah. a good guy. I like yeah, him. I like him. I like listening to him. So work smart and hard. Yes, he, he knows what's up. Absolutely, it's true. You, uh, what's that other expression people say? I don't even know why we're talking about this, but <laughs> the other expression it's like uh, hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard yeah, or something. Yeah, you'll see a lot of people that have a lot of Nike stuff with that. So much potential, but they don't want to put in that extra work. And somebody who's not quite as talented that shouldn't be where they are right. just will pass them. Why don't we just have the talent and the hard work, and then everybody will be happy. Yeah. I wish I could just get that injected, like talent, yeah. injected into my arm. Yeah, PRN. I, mm-hmm. PRN success. And Yeah, it'd be so much easier. Yeah. I then I could good. still watch Netflix. <laughs> right. But not anymore. Mm-hmm. Netflix is over. No, no more Netflix. <laughs> no more Netflix. It's but unfortunate. still got the subscription, so. I do. I keep it for the wife. She's happy with it. Yeah. <laughs> she never watches it either. I'm just kidding. <laughs> we, I don't even know why we have it. I'm just donating money to Netflix at this point. Yeah, well, you know. All right, so cool. where should we get started? You want to walk us through some of the 
pathophys? Yeah, let's just a little background of what psoriasis is in general. So you probably you may have seen this uh, on patients or on people in general. A lot of commercials for these new drugs that are coming out that'll talk a lot about plaque psoriasis. It seems like it's the most common type, but basically chronic inflammatory condition of the skin. So this would be classified under a derm podcast, which I think this is the first derm topic we've taken on, isn't it? Uh, we did acne vulgaris. Oh, we did acne. Okay. Mm-hmm. Wow, we're hitting the, the good ones. Yeah. We need melanoma next there. and We'll just get every, all the big ones out of the way. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're basically board certified dermatologists. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> they could pay. Yeah, so give us the salary, the yeah. derm salary, and we'll be happy. No, not even close. Not even close. Uh, but yeah, like I said, chronic inflammatory skin disease, it'll have well-demarcated plaques. They might even have a silver tinge to them, and it's associated with a lot of comorbidities. You generally think of it as being an autoimmune disorder. Uh, there's a lot of other uh, reasons you can have that. Very genetically based. Um, I think about 40% of patients with psoriasis have um, a family history of these disorders. Generally, it's a first-degree relative, so a lot of genetic basis there. Mike mentioned there's a lot of different types. We're going to focus on plaque psoriasis. There's pustular, there's nail psoriasis, inverse, so a lot of different types, but we'll focus on the big one. Uh, the prevalence, it's more common than I thought. Uh, they're not really sure. It ranges from about 1% to 85 or 9% in the world. In children, about uh, up to 2% or so as far as epidemiology goes. It can come on at really any age, but generally patients who have this are going to see a peak uh, of flares around the ages of 30 to 39, somewhere in that range, and then maybe again between 50 and 70 years old, they're going to have a couple of big peaks. So that's kind of it. Basically, as far as what's happening, it's a hyperproliferation uh, of keratin uh, differentiation on the epidermis or an abnormal differentiation. You're going to have inflammatory cell infiltrates, uh, a lot of inflammatory, pro-inflammatory markers like TNF-alpha, interleukins that are going to be involved, and you may have vascular dilation in that area, and all that's going to lead to plaque psoriasis occurring frequently in the elbows. People have it on the scalp, on the neck, under the arms, on the knees. It can really be anywhere, but uh, frequently localizes around the joints. So it's kind of going through some of the adjunct I guess therapies, not so much the treatment options or anything that's going to control symptoms, right? But um, something that can definitely help, I guess, quality of life and help uh, keep the skin healthy are uh, moisturizers and cleansers that patients should be using. Um, I found a nice chart that was in Clinical Dermatology, uh, their textbook actually, um, that was written uh, by Souter and colleagues in 2017. Then their most recent update, and they have a. Uh, Nice table in there that talks about moisturizers and ones that have been shown to have the most efficacy. Um, Aquaphor, uh, Vanna cream, Eucerin, Cetaphil moisturizing cream, and Aveeno lotion are all some that have been uh, shown to, to benefit patients. And um, also for the cleansers, they have Cetaphil, Gentle Skin Cleanser, Dove Bar Soap, Unscented, and then Aveeno Body Wash. And I actually posted something about this on Instagram. And uh, one of the dermatology PAs saw it on there, and I actually tagged her in and asked her if she agreed, and she said she did, so I'll take it. There you go. That's <laughs> so, all you need. So, uh, yeah, that's that's kind of just a rundown of some of the um, medica- or some of the topicals that patients can use in combination with their actual medications. Right. And you generally stratify treatment based on disease severity. 
So mild to moderate disease is where you're looking at these topical therapies. He mentioned the emollients, that's for hydration. There's other topical therapies we'll talk about. In more severe disease, moderate to severe, that's when you're thinking uh, systemic options, oral options, injectable options. So we'll go through that as we go through what you can use in plaque psoriasis. All right, so starting off, I guess we'll talk about uh, corticosteroids, topical corticosteroids. Sure. So that's kind of the first line option, and the the reason for that is corticosteroids have a, a few different mechanisms of action. Uh, they're anti-inflammatory. Um, they have some vasoconstrictive properties, but basically what they're going to do is they're going to decrease the activity of endogenous chemical mediators that are involved with inflammation, and so they're going to help with those plaques, help with uh, anything that can, um, the, the redness, the swelling, all those kind of cutaneous symptoms that we see in psoriasis. And, uh, you know, that's great. And we have plenty of them available that are available as generics and pretty cheap, but uh, they're not all made equally. So they're, they're ranked based on their potency. And so I have a table here I'm going to actually bring up so I can talk directly from it. Yeah, and while you're bringing that up, uh, the mechanism of the corticosteroid use or how it works in psoriasis is not fully understood. But like you said, anti-inflammatory how does it do that? One way, it's an immunosuppressant. So a lot of the symptoms of plaque psoriasis, people think, comes from immune-mediated reactions. And so corticosteroids are, of course, going to decrease that, at least to a local extent. Yes. And so I have this table pulled up here. Um, for super high potency, um, we think about betamethasone, dipropionate, um, clobetazole propionate, um, fluosininide, those are some of the uh, halobetazole is another mm-hmm. one. Those are the ones that are considered super high potency. Um, also um, considered just high potency, you have uh, betamethasone dipropionate, um, a, a less strong version of uh, fluosininide, a weaker, I should say, not less strong. <laughs> and uh, uh, there's also, it goes down to medium potency, for example, uh, where you can have hydrocortisone, valerate, mometazone, um, and then there's lower to mid potency and then low potency. Right. So low potency, and then there's also least potent as well, which is like the very bottom of the... Like OTC, basically. Yes. Hydrocortisone type uh, stuff. Exactly. So hydrocortisone 1% is the one I always think about um, when I consider like the a lowest. least, yeah. lowest potency. Yeah. And it kind of ranks these potencies generally. This is like, you know, big in the derm world, but in groups from one to seven, one being the super high potency, seven being the least potent. And while the same medication can be in a different class, it's usually going to have a different concentration. So 0.05%, 0.25%. If you're ever wondering, it's really easy to find a relative potency chart. You may even, you know, have one of your students make one up for common uh, dermatologic or topical steroids that you dispense you can keep a little piece of paper there at your pharmacy just handy to have generally speaking if uh, say you don't have a certain size of a tube you don't have the certain formulation of a steroid you can look up a relative potency and i'm sure physicians um, or at least if you're talking to their nurse or whoever you can suggest an alternative that you have that would make it easier on them when they're choosing something to switch if insurance didn't cover it or if you just don't have it in stock and the patient really needs it right then so kind of going through some of the adverse effects of steroids you know the typical things we think about are just cutaneous reactions you know eventually leading to like skin atrophy um really bad acne contact dermatitis 
um, hypertrichosis. There's there's all kinds of things that can happen from it. Hypopigmentation, um, but they actually can have some systemic absorption as well. Mm-hmm. And um, so you have to actually worry about like the um, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis uh, and the suppression of that system. Um, and then you know Cushing syndrome is something that would be extremely rare, but um, I mean in theory I guess it could happen. And there's been some case reports of it. Um, and then, you know, things like osteonecrosis of the femoral head, cataracts, glaucoma, those are all things that have been like kind of reported, not necessarily that you'd ever see those, but things you have to keep in mind. Um, most of the, most of the problems that we see are the cutaneous reactions. Yeah. So, you know, if you're going to use a high potency, for instance, corticosteroid, you have to be very aware of where, which part of the body you're putting that on. Um, face is probably not the best option. Probably for not, especially for the high potency ones. So, because of course the dermis is, or the epidermis is thinner at those areas and it's going to cause more local reactions. So uh, under the arms also, maybe even under the joints of the knee, stuff like that, places you may want to be a little bit careful about. Absolutely. So, you know, they typically think of saving high potency corticosteroids for areas that are, uh, you know, have very thick plaques and that, you know, they're, they're resistant to treatment. So palms, soles of the feet, large areas like the, you know, the back shoulders, um, something they can, they can use a high potency. You have skin there. That's not going to be uh, damaged from a high potency. And then you want to stop using therapy or at least, um, you know, de-intensify as quickly as possible and not keep the person on that long term. Yeah. And consider the cost too. They vary widely between the type of steroid, the formulation, the size of the tube. A lot of practitioners will have kind of go-to uh, topical corticosteroids that they're going to recommend for people or prescribe based on those relative potencies, maybe one go-to in each class or each you know high potency, medium potency, least potency. Trying to find one that's relatively cheap, even if the insurance doesn't cover it because there are cheap ones out there. But if you pick the wrong one, they can be super expensive. The patient isn't going to pick it up. Uh, best case scenario, the pharmacist ends up calling you and asking you to switch it to something cheaper and they can make a recommendation or you can just, you know, switch it to something cheaper. Sometimes there's reasons why you want a certain formulation and a certain size and it's just going to be expensive and hopefully the patient can afford it or insurance covers it, but definitely a consideration with any of these topical options. Yeah. And most of them, you know, like Cole was saying, most of them do have generics in each potency level, if you will. So you can find something that, that is, that is covered. Um, the other thing to consider is the vehicle that the medication actually comes in. You know, what I mean by that is an ointment versus a gel versus a cream versus a solution or foam or shampoo, whatever it may be. So kind of thinking about where and, uh, you know, how the patient's going to be using this. Typically, corticosteroids are used twice a day. And so ointments, they're, they're considered typically, this is kind of just a uh, all-inclusive, I guess, statement. It doesn't always play out this way, but... Ointments, because they're the most occlusive, um, seem to have the best uh, enha- like drug penetration. And so, you know, they, they're typically seen to be the most effective. However, they're greasy, um, probably better to use at bedtime. Um, and then also, you know, the patient just may not want to use an, an ointment. They may prefer a cream. Right. And, you know, if a patient has issues with, like, um, dry skin or something like that, they may need a cream or lotion as well um, so that to reduce some of the side effects they may get from using like a gel or an ointment. Um, uh, as far as like the ear canal, um, if you have psoriasis in the scalp, 
Um, there is a solution. There's foams now available. There's shampoo. Mm-hmm. If you have a really large area that needs to be covered, there's sprays that are available. So there's all kinds of different formulations that you can get. The big thing is paying attention to which ones are generic and which ones are uh, crazy expensive. Because I think there's a, I want to say it's top of court um, spray is still just crazy expensive. Really? Um, but always consider the cost, brand versus generic. And if you're not sure, a quick Lexi Comp search or one of the other resources should should pull it up and tell you. Right. All right. Where do you want to go from corticosteroids? You have anything else on corticosteroids? Um, no. Do you? That's all I got. We can talk about Tazerac next. Okay. So it's kind of related. Going off of that, we'll look at the topical retinoid that is available um, for psoriasis. So Tazerac um, is the only one that's actually um, used. I, I believe it's the only one that's indicated for psoriasis. I don't think like. Um, Tretinoin and the adapalene are, as far as I know, this is it. And we we this is tazeratine, um, which we actually referenced and talked about in depth, I think, in the acne podcast. Yes, so you can also get more information about it there. But yeah, as far as I know, just tazerac. And um, it's been studied uh, both the 0.1 percent and the uh, 0.05 percent. Um, the gels were both shown to be effective in both of those strengths. There was a 2012. A systematic review that showed um, 50% of patients had um, an improvement of at least 50% of their symptoms um, compared to standard treatments and um, and especially against placebo. Um, there's been several studies that have shown that it you know it can be effective, but whether or not it's more effective than steroids um, is not really been seen. Um, it, it hasn't really played out that it's you know a lot better of an option than a steroid. And the problem is typically it has a lot of adverse effects. You know, burning, itching, um, erythema. There's uh, can cause like lesions on the skin potentially in bad you know scenarios. Make them make the skin very pho- photosensitive over time. And so you know one of the things that can help is actually giving it with a corticosteroid, which you know if a steroid is not all that if if it's not being as effective as you were hoping um you're already you don't want to go to like a higher potency um you could consider giving with this um tazerac and and then that should cut down the side effects as well but um one of those things is probably not the even in combination probably not one of the best options yeah and i should have mentioned at the beginning that while this you know even if it's severe and can be severe not necessarily a disease state that's going to kill somebody but definitely it can be debilitating to a lot of patients. They're going to cover it up. They get embarrassed about it, you know, especially in adolescence and when they're younger. So consider that similar to acne, a lot of these dermatologic conditions that aren't uh, significantly malignant, consider the patient's mental state and what they think about it, you know, going forward. I mentioned that genetics is a big factor in getting or having plaque psoriasis. There are some other more environmental modifiable risk factors, one being smoking, also alcohol, obesity, certain drugs can cause it, and even vitamin D deficiency. So I mentioned that because a couple of other options are vitamin D analogs, one being calcipotriene and another being calcitriol. Both of those are vitamin D analogs that you can use to treat plaque psoriasis, right? Yes. Um, th- those are basically going to work by inhibiting the uh, keratinocyte proliferation. 
Um, they're also going to inhibit, and this especially calcitriol is going to inhibit uh, T lymphocyte activity as well. Um, now, for a long time, we only had the uh, the the one version, the um, um, drawn a blank, uh, the uh, Calcipo trial. Uh, triene. Um, yeah, yeah. That, the uh, calcitriol is the more recent version. Um, the, it was used twice a day, um, and it wasn't. It was shown to be about as effective as, you know, a class three corticosteroid. Yeah. In some of the studies, um, there there was a 2002 analysis that showed vitamin D analogs were as effective um, uh, as most potent steroids. Um, somewhat more, um, I guess, m- minimal side effects. I, I should say a, a less severe, um, not minimal, but less severe than uh, corticosteroids. Still can get some burning, some edema, peeling dryness, things like that. Um, you know, one of the things though, that they've noticed is that that actually seems to be better in combination, which makes sense, right? And you're giving two medications, right? Um, and it's one of those things that uh, they've actually studied in, in various various treatment options. So, for instance, they've used where, like, they've, they'll give uh, calcipotriene with halobetazole and for two weeks, using it twice a day. And then they will continue to use the vitamin D analog during the week and then give, like, this blast steroid effect, if you will, on the weekends. And that should be effective in one study. Um, they've done different variations of that. Um, and then there's also just a combination product available um, with uh, calcipotriene and betamethasone. Yeah. And I should mention that these vitamin D analogs are topical when you use them for psoriasis. So there is calcitriol that you might give if somebody's vitamin D deficient and also as CKD happens a lot in the elderly population because it kind of skips that um, renal portion of getting the vitamin D activated but this is referring to the topical formulation. So supplementing orally with vitamin D, as far as I know, isn't really a treatment. But, you know, if somebody has deficiency, you may consider just treating it and getting that normal. But overall, supplementing, if they're not deficient, not necessarily something you would consider in these patients. Well, and one of the concerns was that these patients would um, get some get too much systemic absorption, and they would they were worrying about... Uh, hypercalcemia, right? Because that's obviously a huge concern when you're taking calcitriol orally. Sure. Um, but they've they've studied it and uh, they didn't see an increase over a 52 week period. Um, didn't see an increase in uh, hypercalcemia risk um, when you're using it topically. So um, one of those things, you know, still keep in the back of your head, but not nearly as much of a concern as would be taking it orally. Right. Right. Which Very makes true. sense. Yeah. Makes sense. So there's all you know. There's older treatments like tar. <laughs> we won't really go into the, that one, but you know that's that's one thing that uh, has been around for a very long time. Um, there are still some people, I'm sure, that use it, uh, but it has all kinds of formulations as well: shampoos, creams, um, all all kinds of things. So it is still out there, still considered, but probably not as good as some of our other options. Yeah, a couple of the other ones, especially in regards to the face, because we talked about how you don't want to use high dose steroids around the facial area, calcineurin inhibitors. So you could have topical tacrolimus or even pimacrolimus. Both have been shown to be effective and relatively well tolerated. Uh, You generally think of these when they're um, used orally, a lot of immunosuppression and um, bone marrow suppression that comes along with those sorts of things. But topically, they're relatively well tolerated. Yes, and keep in mind, too, the cost. So Tacro is a generic, um, so 
uh, per topic does come as, as the actual generic. And um, however, the other one, Eladil, does not. Eladil is extremely expensive still and something that is, is not... Um, not readily available to everybody, so you have to keep in and keep in mind whether or not the patient can actually afford it. Yeah, um, I actually spoke with um, a lady not too terribly long ago and had this issue. Her her uh, dermatologist had written her a prescription for Eladil um, for using on the face for psoriasis, and um, her with her insurance it was still hundreds and hundreds of dollars. Yeah, and um, so we ended up getting a switch to Tacro and. Uh, that was like 12 bucks. Yeah, so much so, cheaper. Much cheaper, and she was able to actually get it. So keep that in mind, too. Yep, there you go. Um, there was a study that actually showed um, betamethasone, Valorate, 0.1%, um, being more effective than the Elodil. So, you know, these aren't considered the most efficacious. However, like Cole said, you know, keep them in mind for sensitive areas that you wouldn't want to use, especially long-term corticosteroids on. Right. So face, um under the arms, you know, things like that. Yeah. And a relatively new treatment uh, that I wasn't super familiar with is anthralin, also another topical. So, so yeah, that's, that's actually, it's been used for a long, long time. Okay. So it's not I new. S- it's just never talked about. I saw, I saw 20th century and I was like, wait a minute, 20th century is not new. That's been quite some time. <laughs> it's been a minute. So yeah, it, it has been out for a long time, but um, I was, I was never really familiar with this either um, until I started looking through some of this material, but, um, it's, you know, one of those things that it's not really used all that much anymore. Um, because of the side effects, it is, uh, something that can have really severe skin irritation associated with it. Um, typically if, if you're using it in an outpatient setting, um, what patients will do is they'll apply it to the area, uh, for about five to 10 minutes and then it's removed and they can titrate up to 20 to 30 minutes as they tolerate it. Um, and often they'll even coat like the other parts of their skin, like the healthy skin with like zinc oxide or some sort of a barrier cream so that the medication can't get on uh, the healthy skin because it's got that much of a reaction. Right. So it's something that there's definitely better options out now and, you know, probably something you wouldn't see unless you were using it in a very specific patient population working under a dermatologist. But, you know, I, uh, I'd be curious to see hear from a dermatologist and see exactly where this is used in, in therapy anymore. Yeah. Interesting. So that's most of the topicals as far as I can tell. Yeah. Right. What about, uh, light? Yeah. So ultraviolet just, light. Just mention it. Yeah. It's, it's another thing that the people try. Uh, it's interesting. I think for sure something to look for, look to in the future. And I mean, they're using it now. The idea is like most of these, it can have anti-proliferative effects, slowing the, creatinization, anti-inflammatory effects, um, acting on T cells, but especially during the summer months, um, they'll use this ultraviolet light therapy and it helps some patients. So if it works for you, you know, go for it. It seems like it's relatively well tolerated and safe. So not too many issues I can see there. Yeah. And I've seen where it does have some benefit in combination with other therapies as well. So definitely something to consider. Yeah. Um, you know, I know that there's other risks associated with it, um, but we won't really go into that because I, I know I personally can't really speak to that because I haven't done much research on it. Right. But know that it's out there. All right. So I guess moving on to systemic therapies. Right. Which you'll think of more in severe plaque psoriasis and patients who might be resistant to the topical therapies too. And so, you know, the, the main systemic therapy that we 
we think of is methotrexate. Mm-hmm. So, you know, methotrexate has several different, I guess, uh, indications at this point. Yes. Um, it's has direct anti-inflammatory benefits, um, works on T-cell gene expression, um, has a few different mechanisms of action, but it seems to be very effective uh, in regards to psoriasis and, and controlling the, the outbreak of, of plaques. Yeah. Um, it's one of those things that as long as you're monitoring and um, checking liver function and things like that, you, there are some patients who will use it continuously for uh, years mm-hmm. um, and they still can't have sustained benefits with it. Um, and, you know, some patients that are on low enough doses that uh, can take it without having to worry too much about uh, long-term side effects. Yeah. An interesting counseling point is that this generally is not used every day unless it's maybe being used for chemotherapeutic doses. Sometimes it's dosed three doses per week. Sometimes it's only given once per week. There's an IM and sub-Q formulation. A lot of times it's given with folate, folic acid, because that's one of its mechanisms. It's going to deplete folate. So consider that if you're prescribing it, or if you see a patient on it who isn't on folate, maybe check a level, maybe just supplement them because it, you know, wouldn't hurt them. But uh, yeah, definitely a counseling point. But like I said, it's used as a chemotherapeutic agent, also can be used in rheumatoid arthritis. So it has a lot of, and those are FDA indications. It's not even off label. So it has a lot of uses. And uh, so the, the big thing to monitor for, um, checking, uh, checking the liver and yes. making sure that, um, the liver function is is not being affected. Um, you can get some liver toxicity over time. Um, they used to have set uh, standards of when you would biopsy the liver. Um, that's been updated, and you know, depending on the patient having certain risk factors and, and things like that, it really determines um, when they actually biopsy, um, or if they've had like a 3.5 to 4 gram, some, somewhere along those lines, um, cumulative dose over their time, then they may consider it as well, especially high risks. Uh, high-risk patients. So yeah. it's something that, you know, make sure that the patient is aware of that that's a potential. Um, and the other big thing is it's a pregnancy category X. Yes. So, you know, it's one of those things that it's recommended that uh, men, um, you know, you're using some form of birth control, obviously, uh, contraceptive, um, uh, barrier contraceptive uh, in men, and then they should still be using that or their uh, partner should use birth control for uh, three months, Um after stopping the medication and then um, women uh, should use birth control for at least one um, ovulation cycle yeah after and generally speaking in women of childbearing age just use it with caution and make sure that they're warned but some of those are risk factors you mentioned for hepatotoxicity being diabetes obesity um, excessive alcohol consumption and also not being supplemented with folate while you're on methotrexate therapy so all that's going to increase your risk for hepatotoxicity and always be aware of those special considerations, this being pregnancy category X. Some of the drug interactions with methotrexate, just to touch on a couple of them, um, obviously in regards to the, because it does affect folate biosynthesis, uh, it can interact with uh, Bactrim or sulfamethoxazole trimethoprim. Um, it can affect uh, phenytoin, ciprofloxacin, um, certain thiazide diuretics. So all those things can potentially uh, increase toxicity with it. So just be in mind, it does have does have certain drug drug interactions, but not a ton of them. Yeah. So keep that in mind. Um, the other systemic uh, medication that's used, uh, not nearly as often as methotrexate, but it's still available as cyclosporin. 
and um, you know this is this one can be effective as well, but it definitely has uh, significant um, drug drug or no, I'm sorry, not drug, drug adverse effects rather. Yes. Um, and, and we should mention just generally, it might go without saying, but all of these systemic therapies are going to have a lot more side effects than the topicals for sure. So consider that before starting patients on one of these. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, you have to get a lot of baseline labs. Um, you're having to monitor triglycerides, uh, CBC, uric acid production. Uh, it can affect magnesium, potassium. There's just so many different things that can go on mm-hmm. with cyclosporin. Um, so it's one of those things that it's probably not as good of an option in most patients as methotrexate, um, but there are still some patients that will get some benefit from it. Yeah, and it's also a calcineurin inhibitor, so it's going to have the same idea as using Tacro or um, Elidel, Pemacrolimus in this disease state. So, um, there's another one, too, that I, we should mention. It's a retinoid-like compound um, that's an oral option, and it's um, uh, soriotain. Um, it's something that I don't, I haven't personally seen too much of. Um, I know that it's used in um, certain issues with, uh, or um, certain types of psoriasis more so than others, um, like uh, erythemodermic um, psoriasis, I believe it's called. I think it's for mild to moderate um, cases of that. It's one of the first line options. Um, but it again has has some side effects you have to monitor. Um, it's one of those things. It's it's oral, so that's good. Um, but it's pregnancy category X, and um, you can't do things like donate blood when you're on it, and then uh, for at least a year after. And then um, you definitely need to avoid alcohol on it as well, and um, can cause a uh, much longer elimination, I guess, because it increases the half life even after you've discontinued the drug. Um, but there's um, certain cases where you would use that, so be aware that it's out there, but probably something you wouldn't see too much of. Yeah, and that's the generic is acetretin, right? Yeah. So yeah, those oral retinoids are nasty in pregnancy. This one specifically, it's contra- pregnancy is contraindicated for three years after stopping this drug. So if you have any plans to begin pregnant, this is not the drug for you. And I think it's really not even indicated for women of uh, reproductive potential, pretty much just men, and they need to be cautious too, but then women of non-reproductive potential. So be aware of that. And the last... Uh, oral medication that I can think of um, is the Otesla, mm-hmm. so the Epermolast. It's a phosphodiesterase 4 inhibitor. Not um, a phosphodiesterase 5 inhibitor. Yes, no, definitely not. not. A little bit different. So this is uh, this is something that definitely is, is fairly new. Um, you might even see some commercials about it and things like that. Um, Again, has its place in therapy, maybe not as effective as some other agents that are out there. Um, it does have a titration schedule that you have to follow um, because it can give really bad diarrhea whenever you first start. So mm-hmm. you have to kind of titrate your way up over the next five days or so. Yeah. Um, but eventually it's a 30 milligram capsule that you're taking twice a day. Yeah. So, um, you know, one of those things, somewhat mild side effects though besides that, some, some nausea, headache, maybe a little bit of weight loss. Um, there's been some cases of like upper respiratory infections, um, things like that, which phosphodiesterase four is, uh, makes kind of makes sense because that's the phosphodiesterase that's uh, located in the lungs. Right. Um, so you can get more, um, pulmonary dilation, I guess. So you can increase chances of something, something getting to that area that shouldn't be there. Yeah. And inhibiting that basically reduces production of cytokines, which are responsible for the pathogenesis of psoriasis. That's kind of the mechanism behind that. 
and why we would use it in psoriasis in general. Also a little bit expensive, a little bit closer to biologics, as which we're about to talk about as far as price than methotrexate, which has been around a long time, a little bit cheaper than these other ones we're about to talk about. Yeah. Um, the other thing is to um, keep in mind, you may have seen the other phosphodiesterase for the topical version, um, Eucrisa. Um, that is currently only being used in uh, atopic dermatitis. It's not approved for psoriasis. I don't know that if they have plans for trying to move it that route, um, but if you do happen to see that medication, um, that would be used more for an eczema situation, not uh, not psoriasis. Yeah. Just to clear up any confusion. Well, cool. So you want to briefly tackle these biologics because there are a whole bunch of them. So we'll kind of be talking a little more generally about them, I guess, as far as side effects and monitoring and what they're used for goes. But they are a little bit different even within a similar class, right? Yeah, so there's uh, the TNF-alpha inhibitors were the first kind of biologics that we think of when mm-hmm. it comes to psoriasis. Um, Humira has been around for a little bit now. Um, it's used pretty frequently as far as biologics go. Um, and it, it's all of these, like Cole said, have pretty serious, I guess, not necessarily adverse effects, but they put you at risk for certain things that can be potentially pretty serious, Yeah. Um, most of which are infections. So they increase your risk of having an infection pretty severely. Um, usually it's, you know, upper respiratory tract infections, um, but it even could include things like sepsis. Um, you have to get a TB test to make sure that you don't have latent TB because it can actually uh, can reactivate cause reactivity. It. Yeah. And that's kind of across the board with these monoclonal antibodies, things that you have to think about. Uh, if patients have latent TB, it can also reactivate Hep, hep B. Hep B, yes. So that's that's a consideration as well. Yeah, and you know all kind. Of, I mean, aspergillosis. I mean, there's um, candida type infections. There's, um, I mean, just so many things we could go into. But it definitely puts you at risk. Um, it also can um, worsen certain like demyelinating disorders, um, especially things like multiple sclerosis, um, lupus-like syndromes, things like that. Um, there's a, an increased risk of malignancy as well. So right, t- tumors t- because what is TNF? Tumor necrosis factor. So if you're inhibiting TNF, of course you're going to have a higher risk of some type of maybe lymphoma, blood cancer, that sort of thing. So you know how high is the risk? Hard to say. You know you got to weigh the risk and benefits when you're treating these types of issues in patients. Yeah, so definitely a conversation you need to have with the patient. Um, and we also should mention, though, that um, the there is that block box warning for increased chance of lymphoma um, and other types of cancer with the um, tacrolimus and uh, elodil as well, yeah. calcium um, inhibitors. Yeah. So keep that in mind. I don't think we mentioned that. But, we did not, no. Um, that's also a conversation you need to have with patients, especially since they're not even as effective as other agents. Right. So for sure. risk first benefit for sure. Um, all right. So, you know, if they have this many side effects, this many chances of having a problem, why in the world would we use them in the first place? That's a great question. Uh, you know, th- there's, you know, one trial that we can kind of mention. Um, there's the, uh, the champion trial that was looking at Humira, um, and it's efficacy, uh, versus patients taking methotrexate. Um, and so we see like about a 30%, a 36%, um, increase in, or I guess a cure rate, I guess, in uh, methotrexate versus like an 80% in the uh, Humira group. Now, there is, this was kind of like a crossover study where patients were starting methotrexate and then crossed over to Humira. Um, and there's some speculation on 
you know, because the patients were still improving on methotrexate, if they had just left them on that longer, would they have finally improved and would they have kind of met somewhere, but they didn't really give the methotrexate long enough to play out. So that's one thing that can be an issue with the study, but it did show that the efficacy of Humira and how effective it is at getting patients, you know, under control very quickly. Um, it's given uh, at 80 milligrams subcutaneously the first week, and then it is uh, given 40 milligrams the following week, and then 40 milligrams every other week continuously after that. So it's something you can use every two weeks. So it's pretty, pretty uh, good as far as having to take something. Um, I think I would definitely like to uh, inject once every two weeks than <laughs> taking a medication every day that I'd probably forget. Um, but that being said, it's extremely expensive. Uh, there are insurance companies that will pay for it though, but each box that's you know about twenty twenty eight day supply you're looking at is about five six thousand dollars. We, so it's very very expensive. Yeah, could be worse, could be better, but it's really I mean if insurance isn't covering that, you'd be hard pressed to find somebody to pay that. That being said, it, it can be a debilitating disease, especially when it's severe for patients. Also consider, like you said, it's an injection, so injection site reactions are very common with any of these injections. So something to warn patients about and um, just to be aware of because it's not an oral medication. Right. So and what, what about vaccines? Yeah. So, you know, the big thing to watch out for is the, the live vaccines. Yeah. Um, now, it can decrease the effectiveness of a non-live vaccine because if your immune system is suppressed, then you may not get the same immune response from your uh, your T cells and, you know, your, your B lymphocytes. But... Um, you know, it's something that's not necessarily going to cause any issues, but it's definitely something that's you de- you want to be not giving these uh, patients right. live vaccines for sure. So the recommendation generally is if you know they're about to get started on this and they may be due, and they're going to be on it long term, and they may be due for some vaccines in the near future, just go ahead and give it to them before you start. And then while they're on it, they shouldn't have any live vaccines. So those being MMR, rotavirus, of course, is more in kids, uh, flu mist, Apparently that's making a comeback. That's what I heard. Yeah, what's up with that? I, I, I don't know. They were like, "Man, this was a cruddy year. We need to figure something out." Yeah, let's I guess go back so. to flu mist. I don't know. Well, if it works, you know. Yeah, it is good though because I have about four boxes filled with those demo devices that they sent me. Oh, really? And they've just been sitting there <laughs> for two years. For two years, <laughs> I'm ready to make their comeback. So that's gonna be good. That's hilarious. So yeah, apparently Flumis is making a comeback, and that is the live flu. Not It is a vaccine, but it's intranasal. Also, varicella, shingles, Zostavax version, not Shingrix version, yellow fever, and then smallpox. All of those are live vaccines. I want to say the oral, because the oral yellow fever is the one that is... No, I'm thinking typhoid. You think typhoid, um, yeah. Oral typhoid is alive, but it I is. want to say that there is um, something about because it's absorbed in the gut that it doesn't actually... Doesn't cause. It's not the same risk. I think I've heard something like that. um, I know it's. I know for sure you can use that. Like, whereas they say if you get a live vaccine, you can't get another live. If unless you get it the same visit, you Mm -hmm. can't get another live vaccine for four weeks. Um, That's not the case with the oral typhoid. Typhoids. That's probably more what I'm thinking about. Um, I don't know how. I haven't seen data on it though, as far as using it in patients that are on these type of medications. Right. So we'll, we'll let you know what yeah. we come up with. Or y'all can look. Yeah, and email That's us. Fine. That would yeah. be well, teamwork. It's great. So what else? You know, we have Humira. Yeah. What other? And there's other ones. There's a Tanercept, which is Enbrel, right? Yeah. Also, Infliximab, Adalumumab is Humira, and just various other MABs, monoclonal antibodies. I don't know. Do you want to go 
I don't know if you want to go through all of them, but uh, just to name a couple, and I'll just even call them by their their brand name. Yeah, you go with the brand name because yeah, I'll yeah. go with the brand name. I, I just I looked at those. I was like, I do not feel like pronouncing all these things. I'm not smart enough to pronounce these words. <laughs> so, um, Stellara, there's a, that's instead of going after Tina Alpha, that's actually going to target um, Interleukin 12 and right. 23. Right. Um, and then also uh, Interleukin 17A seems to be a target. For some of these other agents too, like Cosentex, mm-hmm. uh, Salik. Probably seen commercials for Cosentex. You know, that's uh seems to be a trendy target to go after lately. But um, those are some of the other biologics that are available. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is um, these patients, you're going to start seeing more and more, um, because the cost is so high, more and more uh, biosimilars. Right. So there's already two available for Humira, and I believe one... One for Enbrel and maybe two or three for um, Remicade. Hmm. So there's there's several. Yeah. Um, and the, the they've come out over the last couple of years. Um, but the the real question is like when do you when can you tell as far as can you just substitute the the medication one for the other? You know, pharmacist wise, can we just substitute? Um, there is the FDA uh, Purple Book that is available that shows uh, biosimilars, um, shows which ones are considered uh, exact matches, yeah. um, and then which ones are just considered uh, biosimilar, and you have to actually contact the prescriber to switch them. Um, you're going to start seeing that more and more. We're seeing it with insulins. Um, they can't quite call insulins um, biosimilars. They have to call them, uh, what is it, follow-ons or something? Something like that. Follow-ons. Like Basiglar? Yeah, so Basiglar, there's there's several of them now. Yeah, the Fiosp is right, another the, one. The short acting. Um, Admalog, I think, is the other one. I'm not familiar. <laughs> um, I think that's the uh, Humalog. I think it's this. Uh, it's one of them. It's another a, short it's, acting. It's Humalog or um, Novalog. I can't remember which one. I think Humalog. Gotcha. But it looks funny because it's Admi Log. <laughs> <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> but um, what yeah. What do these guys think? I don't know. I wonder whose job it is to come up with these names. I know they should hire you. I'd be so good at and it. And we come up with names on the fly all the time. They're great. Yeah. And they're, like we're T-Rex RX over here. Yeah. Our mascot. Isn't that what, what you decided it was? Yeah. Okay. Or RX T-Rex. I don't remember. Okay. I think T-Rex RX. That sounds good. Okay. That's a good mascot though. Yeah, it is a good mascot. Yeah. People listening to you, what the heck are they what talking are they about? What are they talking about? Watch the video. You'll see them. T-Rex. That sounds so cool. Yeah. Or, or they're just turning us <laughs> off right now. Um, so yeah, the, there's a lot of different research going on right now. A lot of these biologics coming out. So stay tuned for that. Um, I would definitely encourage you to subscribe to something like drugs.com where they will send you updates whenever, mm-hmm. new uh, drug updates. new drugs coming out. You can get a notification that night so you can impress all your friends. Mm-hmm. People Think, still use email, believe it or not. And it just comes right in there. Mm-hmm. You know, your phone buzzes and boom, got the new update. Yep. Sitting around. Having some drinks with your friend. Next thing you know, you're talking about the brand new drug that just came out that night. So yeah, it, it's it definitely helps. Then instead of having to go and like try to figure out when it's going to be released and all that, um, drugs.com. It's a free website. Um, it's one that I personally use quite a bit. So I'm I'm a big fan. Um, but yeah, that's a uh, a lot of the treatment options. Yeah, that was wasn't everything. It was I think that was a pretty detailed overview though. So I was happy with that. And who knows, we might do overviews, we might go more specific. If you guys want us to be more specific, like you have a, just a great topic that you're like, yeah, this will make a great podcast episode, throw it at us. Maybe we can uh, stick it in here. Yeah. 
unless we don't know anything about it, then we'll well, then we we'll research pro- it. Like then everything. we'll then we'll probably still try. Right, <laughs> we'll give it a shot. So uh, yeah, or at least have an expert on here who actually should be talking about this stuff. Right. Well, hey, we get a lot of people on. Yeah, no, that's good. We need we, to get a dermatology person on here for that'd sure. Be great. If you're yeah. a dermatologist, come uh, come hang out with us for a day. Yeah, tell We'd us. We'd like to get your tell t- us all the things we said wrong yeah. in here. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure there were plenty. But yeah. um, cool. So yeah, check uh, check out um, check out uh, Core Console RX on any of the social media platforms. Uh, hit us up on there if you have suggestions or if you want to be on the show. Um, if you have topics you want us to cover, we're we're all ears. We're always trying to come up with topics. Usually, it consists of um, a very detailed meeting. Uh huh. At least two hours yeah. of a meeting. Uh, we're just sitting around like, what do you want to talk about? I we're don't talking. Know. We have the the board present. Yeah, we actually do have a whiteboard today, which yes. is hilarious. Yeah, it's on is, the floor, not even attached to the wall. That's our board. Not real people who make up the board. We have a, a whiteboard. That's the yeah. board. And I realized just now we didn't look at it once. So I know. Okay. I looked at it, and I realized I do have one more thing I want to say. Go for it. This is more like housekeeping, but I was thinking about the last podcast, and the last podcast mm. was uh, was anticoagulation, VTEs, and we talked a lot about factor 10A inhibitors and the DOAX, and I realized what I was talking about. This is not even what I meant to say, but... NOACs, so people said they were new oral anticoagulants, which is why they were new, and so now we're calling them DOACs, which is direct oral anticoagulants, but apparently some people still call them NOACs because the N is novel. Novel, yeah. And so, since they are still technically novel, some people do NOAC. I'm going with DOAC myself. Anyways, moving on from that, I don't think we mentioned that you really should definitely not discontinue any DOAC abruptly because you're going to increase your risk for cardiovascular events. And every time you do that, you're increasing your risk. So if you miss a dose one day or miss two doses, boom, increased risk for cardiovascular events. Very important counseling point to tell patients. I know we emphasized that you should take it every day because you're completely uncoagulated or unanticoagulated once you stop taking it for one day. But there is that warning of increased risk for CV events. So just felt like I should mention that. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. We should just start meshing all the episodes together. Yeah, why not? One Intertwine the them. Yeah. yeah, we'll do it, which we do sometimes. Like we, you know, we talked about Tazerac and acne, and here we go. We already have an archive that we're referencing and sending people to with literally hundreds, hundreds of hours <laughs> worth of information. Yep. yep. We actually recorded this podcast four years ago. Right. <laughs> just now coming out. Just now coming out because of all the the archives. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. We didn't. We have we have zero archives. <laughs> we're actually it's, it's in the books. We're going to be trying to uh, get some. Some podcasts built up, so we have yeah. some actual leeway. Instead of paycheck to paycheck, we're pretty much podcast to podcast mm-hmm. at this point. So. Yep. It's all right. Yeah. We're still cranking them out. Still cranking them out. Oh, and I should mention that you can also email us at mcorvino at coreconsultrx.com, but I also have an email now, so yes. if you want to get in touch with me, cswanson at coreconsultrx.com is also another option. So Yes. Yeah. Pretty awesome. Can't we're wait to add it. Official now. So. Yes. And we got to take out the... PharmD candidate oh, thing yeah. in your uh, iTunes yeah. author. I do thing. need that diploma, but I guess we're pretty much at that point where yeah, we can just we can take it off. We can take it off. Yeah, good deal. It's on the to do list. Yeah, sounds good. Um, also, you know, for those of you who went and ranked our podcast or rated our podcast last week, I really appreciate it. We yeah, had like awesome twenty in one day, so that was awesome. I really, really appreciate you guys doing that. Um, you know, you know that really does mean a lot, and it helps us too as far as search engine optimization and all yeah. that like when people are searching itunes or spotify or whatever so um we definitely appreciate it and 
Let us know if we can do anything for you or cover any topics. And as always, we greatly appreciate you spending your time listening to us. We'll see you next time. Later.